The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the monthly guest Dharma series. So my heart is uh, really full this morning because it's been quite a weekend already, almost quite a year already being here in <laughs> Minneapolis with all the activities since I've gotten here and all the joy that's um, with so many people coming out to to uh, engage and explore and just recognize the importance of this topic in the soup of our Dharma practice. Makes me very happy to see you all here. Thank you for coming and thank you to my Sangha brother here, Mark, and this community of of care that I've felt. Thank you. So um, I want to talk a little bit about my own journey of coming into this work uh, or this life because <laughs> uh, those two words kind of go together these days. We're always in some kind of context. You know, we, we come into this world, we, we, we're, we're always in the middle of something that's happening in our social realm, our political realm, our personal realm, our family realm. Um, So we're touched by the context of our lives. The the way we've been shaped is uh, influencing how we see the world. It's not just an individual lens. It's more influenced by the people we've been in touch with and who've been um, a part of our lives. So I was I was born in 1948. I turned 71 years old this year. And I was raised in South Central Los Angeles. And I came up in the heat of the civil rights movement and black power movements and jazz, I just have to say. It's just right, right up there. <laughs> and I grew up understanding that people, my people, were hated in this country. That was understood. It was an understanding that I grew up in. My family was very political, politically active in civil rights movement. My mother used to be the president of the NAACP back in the day and very involved in the Urban League and also very active in the churches, which was real uh, a home base for us to really organize and also uh, ground ourselves. And um, one of the things I remember early on, you know, there, this, this context again of, of um, suffering and uh, uh, being in communities where the community was working poor and, um, you know, all of the trappings that poverty, the systems of poverty and oppression, oppression perpetuates in poor communities, in working poor communities, uh, was very alive when I was growing up. And um, I was pregnant at 15. I had a baby. My father was murdered by the time I was 17 in a jealous rage with a girlfriend. Um, I ended up uh, um, having open-heart surgery by the time I was 27 years old. 
um, and came out as a lesbian at 35. I mean, I can sing uh, the song, when I was 35, it was a very, you know, we all have a journey and all these journeys are popping in certain contexts. You know, it texturizes our lives and has us see in certain ways. It's all a part of our conditioning. And um, so I found myself very uh, driven, and for the longest time I thought it was more ambition until I realized it was anxiety and fear that was really driving the car. Anxiety and fear around trying to run away from the turbulence in my life that was just uh, unbearable. One of the most vivid images for me was seeing my great-grandmother. I was around seven years old, and I remember her pacing the kitchen in a dirty apron, wringing her hands, trying to figure out, you know, how do I take care of all these black bodies? I can't take care of them. And what was so poignant for me was that I couldn't comfort her. I saw this worry. I saw this, and I saw it pervasively in so many of the people that I grew up around that were trying so hard to work this issue of race and racism, but without uh, without feeling any sense of, of um, traction or success around it. And you fast forward from when I'm seven years old to now being 70, I, I still concern myself with how I take care of the black bodies in my family still dealing with a grandson that's in the jail system with bipolar and not being able to maneuver the structures and systems of oppression that make it close to impossible because he's an adult to intervene on that. But I'm not pacing like my grandmother, my great-grandmother did. I'm doing walking meditation. <laughs> we got to elevate the tribes now. We got to just take it up a notch. So this sense of being driven, you know, I remember saying early on, I'm not going out like that. I'm not going out like that. Every generation is given the baton to take to another level. And so what we do with that is really up to us. How are we going to work with that so that we're not giving birth to the same thing, but giving birth to something that's actually creating a sense of transcendence? I got real curious about that. So I was trained as a therapist. I was also trained in, as an organizational consultant to look at systems and culture. And I specialized in looking at that from a racial lens. So I did a lot of corporate work. I really did a lot of advancement in corporate America only to feel like, to come to a realization that that wasn't a system that was really created for me. <laughs> <laughs> It wasn't really designed for me to be in it doing what I was doing. But because of my ambition and denial of the anxiety that was really driving it, I found myself just really stuck in the, in, in, in the web of, of uh, fighting and worrying and um, trying to get this stuff out here to be right. And it was, with le and it was often without heart. 
It was just a pure righteousness. I was, I was good at it, you know. I actually got the job of being a consultant so that I could point out to white people how screwed up they were and get really paid well for it, you know. But that was still ambition. I still wasn't dealing with the undercurrent of I'm really anxious and afraid uh, and I'm really scared that something really bad could happen to me. There, was, there wasn't any kind of owning around that. So I did all that corporate stuff, and then I was interested in the group dynamics and power structures, and I was really helping organizations really see this. But there was this rub. There was this constant uh, angst around it and frustration around it. And I was still listening to that mantra, I'm not going out like this, right? So I, I did quite a bit of uh, travel and was in China at the Beijing Women's Conference. Uh, I think that was in the 90s. And I met a black woman who was on the board of Spirit Rock who invited me to come and meditate with her at Spirit Rock. She said, do you meditate? And I said, who is this woman in my face? <laughs> I said, I'm from South Central. You don't get that close. She said, come and meditate with me at Spirit Rock. And I went on a Monday night, and I really never stopped going. And one of the things I remember, Jack Cornfield, who was my root teacher, saying in that first talk is he said, you know, um, in these teachings, I, he, he often says, oh, nobly born, remember who you are. And know for yourself was also a piece of the teaching that evening. And there was something about the knowing for yourself that really got me. Because up to this point, I had some real stuff around authority. Go figure, you know. <laughs> so this idea of knowing for yourself and being in a spiritual practice where you can work with your mind to um, choose how you want to engage with what is moving through the mind had tremendous appeal. Just the thought of it brought relief to my heart and mind. That I could actually work with my activation and stimulation enough to know how to then settle and sit in my seat so that I can then respond with a bit more wisdom and compassion became the primary kind of um, passion, if you will, in the practice. And the fact that there was an eightfold path that just laid out the eight of this and the five of that and the six of that, you know, my mind being one that's looking at shapes and systems and patterns and rhythms, it just really resonated for me. So the practice worked for me in terms of instruction and tenderness and care so that I can be with the racial distress in a, in a, in a more, um, in a way where I, was, I wasn't harming myself or harming others. And it's not like I'm there yet. I have this, this little wristband that says, mindful of race, not there yet. And I usually wear a few of them because I have to hand them off to people from time to time when, you know, <laughs> when, when I'm in conversation. So this um, kind of uh, spiritual... Um, Maturity is, is maybe, maybe not the right word, but this sense of internal shift that I've felt from 
the boiling rage to a sense of um, uh, um, using the fire as a source of light and clarity has been a real profound experience for me in integrating mindfulness practice into social uh, and racial um, activation. And it's influenced me being able to respond differently um, because the issues haven't gone away. But my response and my relationship to it has been honed to where I'm really using the energy in a way that um, um, it's so important in our practice. It's, it's hard when you learn about karma and how your intentions and actions are actually planting seeds. It's hard to turn away from that instruction uh, and keep, keep doing what you're doing under the umbrella of being right. Um, so the, the, the tenderizing that happened around me understanding that my intentions and actions were actually planting seeds. I mean, we can look at the world right now. What we're seeing right now is a reflection of seeds being bloomed from past actions, past seeds that's been planted. Right now, the mess we're in and the world is a result of those blooms. And the challenge we have is what seeds we plant to stiff out the, the, the crazy seeds that have been planted, but also give rise to something a bit more wholesome, if only a little bit, through our own consciousness, through our own practice, through our own willingness to look at whiteness, to look at our, our, our blackness, to look at our racial conditioning, and then how that's reflected in the world. I often talk about this as a heart disease. Racism is a heart disease that's curable. It's curable through what we choose to do with the activation and what we choose to do with what we see in the world. And the what we do part is crucial. It's not enough to know or to, especially to not know because not knowing is also seeds being planted. So it was a natural for me to blend this training I had in organizational development with and, and diversity awareness with mindfulness practice. My work was around designing training and leadership programs. So I said, why not design a program around race that has mindfulness as its core intervention to help us with um, ripening a wise heart in response to the racial distresses in the world. So the Mindful of Race training was developed and has been going on for about seven years now in a number of insight communities primarily where we're looking at that intersection of race and mindfulness and working with our conditioning, how we've been concocted to look at race and to see ourselves as racial beings. And part of this work really speaks to us understanding that we're all good individuals and we're also part of racial group identities and some of us get that and some of us don't. And that there's work to be done at both those levels. There's work to be done at looking at our 
ourselves as individual racial beings, and there's work to be done, which is where mindfulness fits in so beautifully. And then there's work to be done at looking at ourselves as racial group members with our same races or as close as we can get to that. There's work to be done, to be done there. And that's why I encourage racial affinity groups. Get with your own race and start decolonizing your mind around racial conditioning. That's a very different coming together than going out to fix a racial issue, going out, you know, before you're ready to really, before you've understood your own rootedness and your own views that's been shaped. Get something, get some clarity around that before you go out with each other and, and do what must be done. One of the ways we miss each other as racial folks is that Many, many white folks come to the racial conversation as good individuals. People of color come with, with um, racial roots of harm, generational harm, cumulative impact harm. And then white people come with innocence and innocence as good individuals, well-meaning, but you don't bring your collective amnesic <laughs> history sometimes to the discussion. And we miss each other. We miss each other. It's a painful miss. Because sometimes we think, oh, we just all need to get in a room and get together and talk about it. We're all good people. We're not. We're, we're, I don't mean we're not, but of course we are good people. We're all good individuals. But when the group identity piece is not really um, honed and brought to the discussion, uh, then people of color end up educating white people about their groupness, and it creates more cumulative impact and we miss each other. So there's work to be done. So um, this training gave birth to the book, and um, I've been doing quite a bit of this training and insight communities to, um, because it's a prime place, because we have the Dharma. We have those four foundations. The Buddha specialized in suffering. So, so it makes sense that Racial, our racial conditioning would be dropped right in the heart of that for examination, for purification, and for love. So it was a beautiful thing to be invited to come to uh, common ground that the causes and conditions kind of resulted in um, the invitation, the invocation for me to come and be with um, this community as its uh, its intention around this waking up is is uh, ripening. It's a brave move for an organization or an institution to state out loud we're kind of we're going to kind of take this on because it's messy and you never get it right. <laughs> you know, it's just hard to get it right. So we can't be about a destination as much as we need to be looking at the, the, the uh, journey of it. And the journey's beautiful to, to claim it because then you're on and held accountable to a certain um, expectation around uh, sensitivity and waking up. 
It's like when I came out, you know, I thought I would be coming out as a lesbian once. But I'm coming out all the time, you know. And then I'm noticing everybody else is in the closet there. You know, I didn't know so many people were in the closet. These other people. And I think racial awareness is like that. You're coming out all the time. You're coming out with the oops and ouches and, oh, my gosh, you know, did I just put my foot in my mouth again? Or I'm so on fire, I just don't, I just can't deal right now. So there's so much more to be said, but um, I just wonder what you have to say about it. <laughs> do, I, do I give you one of these now? <laughs> just be ready. Just be ready. First, I have to say that uh, it's been a real joy just getting to know Ruth and it's so trustworthy seeing a Dharma teacher who really walks her talk and uh, leads with love and uh, not a kind of uh, leans into her tenderheartedness and brokenness. And it's a real strength when you're around Ruth and I'm sure. Some of you, maybe all of you, sense it just even in her relatively short comments this morning. And uh, I don't know about you, but it, this feels sort of a little, I don't know, scary, just for lack of a better word, uh, for me to be up here with Ruth and Stacy. And, um, but it, it just felt, and I think other leaders in the community felt it would be good because so much of what Common Ground is built on are our teachers, leaders, kind of modeling what it is to do this work of opening, seeing what we haven't seen before. And I'm sure some of you have seen, you know, we have our commit, commitment to inclusivity up on the bulletin board and on the website, and we have other statements. And those words, you know, they're limited and they're also beautiful, but it's not the work, right? And this is a thing um, that I think we're in particular discovering around the work of looking at our cultural conditioning, especially around race, but of course in other areas too, class and gender and sex and power. And, you know, we have layers and layers of this conditioning and it, you know, it really has become central. So our statements are one thing, who want to be a, a welcoming community for everyone, where people actually feel safe to do, to do these practices. And the reality is, can I, as a leader here, can the other leaders and teachers here, can we walk our talk? And what does that look like? So I'll share a little bit, you know, just personally what that looks like for me to kind of really start. I mean, it's a humbling experience. I mean, we've always been... A com, uh, you know, a community committed to not harming, to these three parts of the Eightfold Path of not harming and cultivating a stable mind that can be 
intimate with what's moving and the wisdom, the humility, then wisdom to see what we're not seeing. But it's been just in the last, I mean, we've been here for 25 years as a formal community, but it's just been in the last nine, eight years that there's been kind of a another awakening. And I sort of feel like, I mean, I don't feel so bad about that as I may be used to. I, I was at IMS recently and having lunch, Joseph Goldstein was there and a um, person of color who was on staff at IMS. And Joseph was about to go do a program at, I think in Boston with a teacher of color around sort of what we're talking about. And in the conversation, it was so nice. I mean, Joseph's one of my root teachers and I have a lot of respect for him. And it was so powerful to have him say, like in the course of his many decades of practice, how surprising it was for him to see this work, to see that he hadn't seen this work, that this was work that needed to be done. And uh, so I feel like that sort of, that kind of rebirth has been happening at Common Ground, where we're, we see the work of Dharma practice organizationally, and I think most importantly, individually. Like, this is really part of waking up. And we're not there yet. <laughs> I got my bracelet that Ruth was talking about. <laughs> and part of it is just being really clear you know, this connection between um, the confidence really comes from knowing that we don't know or knowing that I don't know and kind of getting comfortable in that in that place. And I'll just give you an example. So we, um, I think 2011, we started something called, we invited Larry Yang to come. It was a while before he, we could schedule him. And then we started an inclusivity circle. We thought, well, before Larry Yang comes and does some training, we should at least model having a conversation. And so we called it the Inclusivity Circle. And I remember it's in early 2012, probably the person is in this room, this person, you know, a leader in our community, a teacher, someone who teaches here, POC person, and describing the impact of walking into Common Ground as a white space. Now I remember how hard that was to hear because it wasn't my experience, of course. And... uh and I didn't understand it. It was like, well, is this person just misperceiving or is there some, you know, bad person, you know, doing microaggressions that I need to immediately find, you know, root out and then we'll be back to being a perfect community. And my, that kind of response was itself a microaggression. I mean, it was a cause, I'm sure, for harm, I'm guessing at least, for harm for that person. Like, you know, just not, getting, like not being able to sense common ground as a white space. Just that it wasn't, and this is not that long ago. I mean, this is 2011 or 2012 probably. And uh, I mean, because, you know, I come from like a lot of white progressive people and, you know, worked in organizations that did a lot of training and worked with, you know, communities of color, but in that bubble, you know, and uh, to kind of really begin to see that uh, how I missed that, oh yeah, this is a white space, and what that might be like for people coming in, and how I might not recognize, 
how challenging that is for people to come into that space and how I participate in the whiteness of the space unconsciously. So that's, you know, just one example. It reminds me, and I think Ruth uses this statement a lot. One of my teachers, Saito Utejaniya, says about the mind, and in particular, you know, we're talking about this conditioning. We all have different, but we all have cultural conditioning. It's pervasive. It's mostly unseen unless we begin to do this work. But he says, you know, our thoughts, our mind, it's not personal. Our conditioning, it's not personal, but we're responsible for it. And for me, this has sort of been the journey of, you know, sort of a step of being shocked and at times humiliated and and, and often painful realization of what I haven't been seeing. And then really working it and seeing that those two truths, that it's not personal, the conditioning, even if it's causing harm, but I'm responsible for it. And this is what I meant earlier about, you know, if the teachers here and leaders here and the community members here and all the people in the room here, if we can't kind of walk that, like really using the deeper understandings we get from the Buddha that, yeah, there are causes and conditionings and we're responsible. Because this is the shadow in Buddhist practice. It's just starting with the first or ending with the first. It's all impersonal. It's just stuff happening. And the subtext of that, it's not my responsibility. Suffering isn't my responsibility. It was so moving yesterday. We had uh, some, I think 25 of us had training with Ruth all day long. And one of the teachers here, uh, right near the beginning, we had a go round and uh, just shared about, just in a very direct and uh, enlivened way, actually, it was, it was, I thought, a amazing moment, like how uh, they're in the depth of their Dharma practice, being more awake, seeing what their mind does with blackness and the negative conditioning that arises around the perception of blackness, however that might happen. And I thought, boy, that's a, that's a real uh, marker in our community work that teachers, leaders can start owning the conditioning. Probably we all have to some degree, some of us more different, of course, because we've been swimming, we've all been swimming, you know, people who have been conditioned here in this culture, we've been swimming in this culture. How could it be otherwise? And uh, because I've started to see that because I've been paying attention to my mind and around my racial conditioning now for you know, more than a handful of years. And uh, I mean, really as a central part of my Dharma practice. But it's scary to say that, to kind of name that, oh yeah, you know, racism is a white person's problem, i.e. me. You know, that it's here in my conditioned heart. It's not in the society or, you know, the poor black communities that need support so they can overcome their conditioning or their kind of historic trauma. But to see, to kind of really do that work of, oh yeah, this is what my mind does in black spaces, around black people, people of color, or any of those spectrums of difference. 
even body shape. I mean, you start, once you start unpacking this, you see how our conditioning is showing up all the time. And I feel that more and more. I mean, I'm not there yet, <laughs> but I, I'm starting to see it. And it's, it's kind of both frightening and enlivening and, and maybe in moments liberating to kind of really see that. Cause it, it feels, Good on the one hand, you know, that it isn't personal means I don't have to be perfect. Because one of the real expressions, I think, of whiteness, at least as I experience it, is that sense of I need to be perfect. And so then I'm really afraid of being perfect. I'm afraid of making mistakes. And that, I think, is also probably, it's certainly a cause for harm for me and probably a cause for harm for people around me. The sort of, and then, when I suspect I haven't been perfect, which is not that infrequent, I feel myself like trying to band-aid that space, which just makes it more imperfect, you know? And uh, I'm seeing some heads nod, right? So there's probably other people who identify as white who kind of recognize this space. And, uh, and then it ends up like the other sort of more pervasive microaggression is then we need people of color so we can prove that we're not racists, right? And that's like, can you imagine having that dumped on you? (laughs) You can imagine that? (laughs) I don't see your color. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm going to sell these. <laughs> They're already for sale. <laughs> I mean, when you think about, you know, I was born in the late 50s and the kind of TV and the kind of media and the kind of parents and neighborhoods, how could it be other than the way it is? Right, So that's like, it isn't personal. And then the question is, and this is really the sila, that, what Ruth, in the title of today's program, you know, the non-harming. It's sort of the more operational word we use in terms of this third of the practice that's about ethical conduct and morality. It's really about like this enlivening uh, work of non-harming and how if we don't do the work of non-harming, unpacking how we participate in harm, we never feel safe. You know, and as a white person, this is the anxiety of whiteness, never feeling safe because I haven't done the work of looking at how I participate in causing harm. And it's really, I think, so central. I mean, the Buddha emphasizes this. It's not like, okay, I'm good enough with my sila, with my non-harming, so now I can move on and do the wisdom practice. It's like we're using the wisdom practice and the samadhi, that stability of the heart, to really be honest and see what we're not seeing and feel into it and that embodied experience. We're using that to do the work of sila, this non-harming, to unpack this messy world of power and race and gender and all the ways we perpetuate suffering with each other. 
So, um, you know, I think one of the things that uh, Stacy, as the head of the board, and Gabe and Shelley and myself as the, and Gail Iverson as our administrative folks and all of our teachers, many of them in the room tonight, today, you know, it's, it's sort of how do we keep, like Ruth was saying, these questions up front? And in particular, you know, for us white people, like what is it that makes the conversation around race so easy to forget? You know, to, to want to feel like we can put it down as opposed to living with that. And I'll just end with this comment that I think has been really true of my own work in this area. Some of you know Sharon Salzberg. She has this great line about the torment of continuity. And there's something about the work of unpacking our racial conditioning and just other strands of our cultural conditioning that is endless. And it can feel, I can feel it being hopeless or too much or I just want to be done with it. And that can lead into pretending, you know, I am done with it or it's not my responsibility or we're overemphasizing it or something like that. And I think this is what I think Ruth's, one of Ruth's real strengths is she's somehow able to share the joy that comes in doing the work. And it's not that her work is the same as our work or my work, but the work is the work. And if it isn't leading to joy, and I think that we can really find this in community together. Like I mentioned a moment ago, it's such a relief not to have to pretend to be done with the work. And it's such a gift to each other to give permission to not being done with the work, but to be in it together, to be able to make mistakes, to realize those mistakes actually cause harm. And that harm's happening anyway. So we can always just do the next chapter, knowing we caused harm. You know, well, what are we going to do next? What are we going to do about that? You know, how can we get clearer about the territory? How can we have a way of illuminating it. And what one of the things that Ruth has really offered our community and some of us have really invested in are these racial affinity groups. And Shelley and Gabe and I and other leaders in the community are more than happy, as Ruth mentioned, to help bring people into these smaller groups where the group itself, um, there's enough homogeneity in the group where you'll feel initially some safety. And Ruth has created some really great structures for these groups using dharma, using mindfulness, and just the power of community, and really that sense of joy of seeing what we're not seeing and doing this work of unpacking our conditioning. So maybe I'll leave it there so there's some time for discussion. Yeah, yeah, we've met every month for a year, and Ruth is demanding... She really wants these groups to meet for three or two and a half hours a month. And, uh, yeah, but it, it's like this thing. It's like our Dharma practice. It is our Dharma practice. You know, we do it. I mean, maybe you're doing it because you just heard about it. But those of you who've been around, if you haven't found joy, if you haven't found some taste of freedom, you're probably not do- doing it. Uh, many people here have heard me say we should have a sign warning people about coming in because when you start this work, you start to feel and see things 
that surprise you and that aren't necessarily easy to see and feel. And this is definitely true around the work of race. But I'm going to turn it back to Ruth, and I think she's going to have some comments. No. Okay, well, that makes sense. <laughs> no problem with me keeping the talk now. So we, we thought we might just have a few um, questions or comments if you'd like to make them um, anything that might be kind of brewing for you. One here and then one there. Okay. Okay. All right. I'm loud anyway, so I can <laughs> project. Um, something that stuck out from your part is the pacing um, piece. And I think I'm at a point in my practice or just living in this conditioned world around it being racist of wanting to let it go or wanting to let go the desire that white folks are just going to get it, especially Minnesota white folks. Minnesota (laughs) white folks are a whole different breed of folks um, and a different breed of whiteness. And when I hear, when I heard Mark talk, there was just an unease that kept arising because I know in this journey it's messy. There's no final destination, but Mm -hmm. this idea that there's time for preferably, well, primarily white people to to mess up Mm -hmm. and to not get it when it feels like for centuries that's been the process Mm -hmm. that's been the allotment for them and it feels like we're on different time journeys because the urgency is there like people are dying people are being oppressed right now because of these harms be it subconsciously subconscious awareness or non-subconscious awareness yeah So it feels like we're operating on different time frames. Mm -hmm. And one part of me as a meditative and one to be a light and beating one to be like, yeah, I can Mm -hmm. flow with my white peers in your Mm -hmm. journey of getting there. But on the other end, like we ain't got no damn time for that. Mm -hmm. Like you've had centuries Mm -hmm. of, of messing (laughs) up and those seeds constantly being planted (laughs) and bloom and to continue oppression, continue Mm -hmm. exploitation, continue murders of black folks, brown folks, and trans and queer folks. So I don't, I'm stuck right now Mm. in terms of like letting that desire go, Mm -hmm. but also being like, well, where in this point do you, when you just don't get to settle in the mediocrity of whiteness? Yeah. 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 Mm. Yeah, when I, I just want to affirm the, the hellishness of, and the, the, you know, the, the distress that's often in just the harsh reality of what you're saying. And that place that we're in often as meditators where we're attending to our heart and we're kind of combing, combing in this practice and then we're still in a sea of ignorance that surrounds us. And it is true that we are on different paces. And um, and I don't know if that's going to be changing anytime soon. So what we're left with is how do I uh, work with that harsh reality? The harsh reality that racism is, is sometimes I find, especially with my other black cohorts, is we know racism exists, but we hate seeing it when it shows its face in this moment. 
but we know it exists, but then, but then when it really shows itself very tangibly, literally, we just, you know, we, we almost can, can, can hardly stand it. So our liberation is not dependent. It cannot be dependent on whether they get it or not. So what are we left with in that field? And that's where I feel like working with our own sense of uh, inner equanimity um, helps us be with the harsh reality of where it is right now with a bit more ease. It, it also influences how we respond to the distress so that we're not burning ourselves up from the inside out. I get concerned about our care and that we get overwhelmed with the size of things, but there's some delusion in it because we actually think we can make somebody do something that before they're ready to do it. And, and that's not really the case. It doesn't say that it shouldn't happen, but it, but the harsh reality, I, this is the way I think about it sometimes. If somebody's trying to make me do something, it's just not going to happen. So I think that's a human kind of thing. My, my heart cries for white people to really, really kind of come into a sense of social equanimity with, with the harsh reality of racism. But the reality is that not there yet. And where does that leave us? So how do we continue to, to point this out in a way that we're not harming ourselves, not harming others, is still a practice. It's still our practice. It is so freaking messy. It is so imperfect. It is so not right. And what are we going to do with that? So, and when I say what are we going to do with that, I don't think there's an answer. I think it's a practice of being with what's my choice in this moment. How do I make sure the seeds I'm planting are, are wholesome? How do I stand on the heads of my answer? How did they do it? How do I go talk to a tree in nature and say, how do you stand all these different seasons? You know, so it's some, it's something like that that I think we're kind of left with. But the harsh reality is it, this is how it is right now. It's just so far from not being taking care of my grandbabies. You know, my great great grandmother was still in this struggle. So you're on the shoulders of many generations and you're in this practice. So there's something about that that I think brings a certain inner stability that supports us in fighting with more integrity and more heartfulness because we we're just chips off the block. Buddha specialized in suffering, and we're cultivating a specialty. You know, it's not the answer of it, of it, but it's how we're working with it. That, that, I hope that helps a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Hi. Thank you for your talk. Um, uh, I think the thing, uh, one important element that for me on my. Uh, journey with race and color has been my own uh, um, intimidation uh, from the pain of the whole subject, specifically the pain that I felt from my awareness of what uh, black folks usually have had to go through through history and the the intimidation of just uh, the anger that I that I experienced growing up from from the community itself. I I went to Minneapolis North in the 70s. Mark and I are about the same age. And, 
it was just a real hotbed of uh, racial anger. And I, and I went to school there and, and, um, it was so interesting because I, I always felt so intimidated. I, I understood, I, well, I wouldn't say I understood the anger, but I, I sensed it. I've always been kind of a real sensitive guy and, and I've always been just intimidated by my sense of that anger. And I was always afraid to really meet it. It didn't hold me back from trying to understand the subject and pursue and, and go. In fact, I've grown so many different ways. It's, it's pretty remarkable, but that, that really hung with me until I think until I started to practice uh, Buddhism, and the the big change for me is me being comfortable with my own intimidations, me just being comfortable with that the awareness of the of the pain that's out there, and that really kind of opened the door for me. I, I think uh, that allowed me to just be present when people would express their pain and not feel like I have to have an answer or a, a profound understanding. In fact, as I go on in life, I'm, I'm pretty convinced so many things, there's no answer. What, what's there is just to be with the person and just experience what they're experiencing. And I, and as I've practiced that, it, it, I won't go on here because just, yeah, let me say a little bit. But what, uh, it's really made it made a change for me. So yeah, this is a. I want you to comment as well on this, Mark. Um, um, when I drop it into the framework that I offer in the book, it goes to the discussion around the individual worth versus the group identity, uh, and how um, what happens sometimes is white people come to the inquiry and the observations that are brought are at the individual level. I'm a sensitive guy. I'm a, you know, good guy, you know, the, the speaking at, at the individual level. But what your, what the, um, what you, you're, you might be witnessing is more of a collective experience that, um, of blackness that might be frightening or terrifying or maybe it wasn't blackness or some other race that brought some anxiety up for you. And the, the not understanding that could be rooted in more of a white group identity as opposed to an individual view. Does that make sense? That the looking at the, the lens from which one looks at the situation is important and what we bring, the texture and understanding that we bring to the way we're looking is important. If we come in looking at the situation just at the individual level, then it's kind of um, hard to understand why um, intimidation, for example, might be at play. But if you look from the group of collective whiteness, it might shed some different light on that intimidation. So I'm wondering if you can add to that. Maybe just brief because see the children are here. But I think humility, and I, I think one of the real stopping places for me is a, a, a habit of needing to know where I'm at with this work, needing to come to some conclusion. And it really, I think, stops the learning, stops the interest, and stops the painful, but ultimately healing investigation and questioning. Because um, we should just you know, talking from the point of view of white people or this white person, uh, presume we're not seeing everything. I think that should be the presumption because that's how that 
Mm. Conditioning operates. We're swimming in something we've always been swimming in. Of course, we haven't gotten to know it because it's what we've been swimming in. And it's really, yeah, it's our responsibility to get interested. It's, um, we're, we're having to call time because we have our young children coming in to chant with us. And we knew when we started this, we were going to run into a lot of questions and interests that we wouldn't have time for. But sometimes the questions we have are meant to apprentice us instead of have answers. So see if you can drop the questions into your practice and see, see what can be gleaned from them. Um, and just know we're in deep appreciation for your showing up. So let's let the little ones yeah, come in. <laughs> Thank you. We'll have some talking after the kids are done singing. Okay. So we're hoping some of the children will come forward with Leah and sing the song for all of us. <laughs> We can put this. <laughs> breathing out, breathing in, breathing out. I am blooming as a flower. I am fresh as the dew. I am solid as a mountain. I am firm as the earth. I am free. I am free. I am free. Breathing in, breathing out. Breathing in, breathing out. I am water, reflecting. What is real, what is true. And I feel there is space. Deep inside of me, I am free, I am free, I am free. Thank you. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.